0: Today we continue our trek through the book of Acts in chapter 13 in the middle of the first missionary trip and the Apostle Paul gives an exposition of the entire Old Testament. An excellent one at that. So this will be an exposition on an exposition. And my hope is is that... uh, It won't take much more than three weeks to do the exposition of his exposition. I want you to get the big picture. What makes a man stand up and proclaim these truths in a foreign land to people that he does not know? Thousands of miles away from his home. And do it with boldness. Why did these missionaries, you know, mission work now is often based on mission work that's been done in the past. When you look at guys go out, you say, well, they did it, so I guess I can do it. Do you understand this is the first missionary trip? So this would be new ground. It would have been exciting ground, but also very scary ground. We see that, and we'll see in a little bit, how one of them even abandons the trip in mid, midstream. But The Apostle Paul, it, it, y'all have to all agree that as you read your Bibles, you see this man was uh, one of a kind, along with Barnabas and those missionaries that were with him over the years. Turn your Bibles over briefly to 2 Corinthians 11. The Apostle Paul describes his missionary trials and and what happens to his life as he goes about all these events, and yet he keeps going. It's not one missionary trip, it's not two, it's three, and then he keeps going. The book of Acts stops when he gets to Rome. But The fact of the matter is, is that the Apostle Paul went through... Many very difficult things. Look at 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four. The Apostle Paul describes his missionary trials. He says, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardships, hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches who is weak without me, my being weak, and who is led into sin without my intense concern. This guy went through a lot, didn't he? What makes a person endure these kind of trials and tribulation? What makes them walk out into the... Uh, wilderness areas, walking up mountains just to reach the next city to proclaim Christ. What makes people do this? How does Paul say in Philippians 1.21, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. How does he act like this? Well, he's fully aware and understood the message he was proclaiming. He knew the gospel. He knew Jesus Christ. He wasn't about riches. He wasn't about fame. He knew Christ, and he was satisfied with Him completely. He abided in Christ continuously. He lived for Christ. He longed to know Christ more. He was a living example of picking up your cross and following Jesus. Friends, it must be our goal. To know this message of God more. This same message is our motivation. The glory of Christ compels us. Our God calls us to some difficult challenges in this world. Whether it is living with family members that don't always treat us well. Or enduring a boss that is unreasonable. Or facing a world that's always seeking to to destroy us. These challenges are impossible by ourselves. They are, in fact, crushing. They are humiliating at times. But the glory of Christ empowers us, doesn't it? It compels us to live for him. Shame doesn't matter if we know Christ and understand what it means to be his. The gospel controls us. It causes us to rejoice in Christ despite our circumstances. Today we see this message motivated the first missionaries to go and do what many would not do. I am convinced the disciples who truly knew the God that they served did radical things for their Savior. I want to do radical things too. How about you? For Him. The message of Jesus Christ motivates us to share and live the gospel with boldness. And so if the world rejects us, if friends despise us, if even our own family members shame us, we will serve the Lord with humble boldness. Not seeking to save face, but seeking to exalt our king. Is that you? Is that what we're about? I want to be about Christ this way. I want to know Christ that much. So that I live for him and honor him in a way that the world looks and says, that guy's radical. I want to be a church, and I want to be a part of church that thinks this way. How about you? In order for this to happen, we must have the understanding of the gospel that the Apostle Paul had. So let's look at the setting for the sermon. First in 13, I want you to notice the missionary team shrank. It got smaller, or I guess it would be they shrunk. The missionaries left Cyprus for other. One missionary, uh, they the missionaries left Cyprus, this small little island there, for Pamphylia. When they arrived there, John says, or uh, says, "I'm going home." Now that's not the Apostle John. That's probably John Mark, who was mentioned earlier. This would have been a hit on the missionaries, wouldn't it have been? We aren't given the reason John Mark left. And boy, there are books and books and books written on why he left the missionaries. And why the Apostle Paul was right for condemning him later in, in Acts 15, 38 to 39. But folks, I think, again, it's reading in the white spaces. We don't know why he left. He left. It does say he deserted him. They left, or the Apostle Paul describes it that way. Again, what this does for me is it encourages me. You say, what in the world? Why would that encourage you? Well, because we don't always have the backbone necessary all the time. It shows that even a guy that would write one of the gospel accounts, John Mark is most likely the same guy, Mark, that wrote one of the gospels under the inspiration of God, Abandon the mission team at one time. That's uh, it can be encouraging for us because look, folks, we mess up, don't we? Anybody get weak occasionally? Say, I just want to give up. Thankfully, the Lord's work continues on even when we mess up. Huh. Isn't that good news? God builds his church with or without us. Praise God. Just picks up with another person and does the work. Why? Because God's about himself, and I'm not ashamed to say that. He's not ultimately about us. This church does not rise or fall based on any one elder or any one person in this church. It is not about that one guy that holds all the power and fame. If you have that, ladies and gentlemen, you need to run from those kind of churches. Because we all are weak men at best. We all are much more vulnerable than we think. But praise to God, he does not give up on us, even when we wimp out, as we'll see in Acts 15, 38 and 39. Notice also that the missionaries start a new work, and it appears that they go all the way up, and this is up on a big, on a mountain, way up on a mountain in, in another Antioch, a different one, at Paseida. The idea here is, is that they move on, and they're spreading the gospel wherever they go. The missionaries continued their regular practice, as noted in 14, notice... When the missionaries arrived at their new place, they went into the synagogue and reasoned from the scriptures. Remember back in Acts 13.5, we saw they reached Cyprus, the island of Cyprus, and they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. So this was their practice. And again, this is not a prescription that it must always be done this way. We have various methods of proclaiming the gospel but one thing that has to be clear, and if you're not noticing this in the book of Acts, the message never changes. <laughs> no matter what, no matter what the way they go into a city and how they do it, the methodology is not the important thing. The message is the important thing. And it's always the same. It's not get rich quick. It's Jesus Christ is your hope. <laughs> it's you're a sinner. You need a savior. Jesus is your hope. That's the message. The missionaries speak with the authority of Scripture, as we see in verses fifteen and sixteen. It was common practice to follow fellow, or to allow fellow Jewish believers to speak extemporaneous expositions in the synagogue. So, what we would not practice today. <laughs> We have visitors here today. I'm sorry, you're not going to give your extemporaneous expositions for us. That practice was not something that would be practiced today. But in God's providence, he used that in a great way, didn't he? He brings in the Apostle Paul to give an extemporaneous exposition of the Old Testament. And they say, brethren, if you have a word of encouragement for people, please speak. We're not here. I love you, visitors. I'm glad you're here, but we don't want you to stand up and tell us what the Bible says. Again, it's description. It's not prescription. We all are learning and growing, right? But in God's providence, he worked through that. Isn't that great? That's how God works. He had prepped these people. So Paul stands and speaks with the authority of the Word of God. He was an apostle. And as he spoke, he spoke, he spoke the word of God. And it had that authority. Paul addressed, you see it, as he stands and he speaks and he raises his hand and speaks the authority of Scripture. And Paul addresses the men of Israel, but also includes those God fearing Gentiles. Notice it says, men of Israel, and you who fear, you who fear God. Again, you who fear God were most likely Gentiles that it had embraced, to a degree at least, the God of Israel. They understood that he was the one true God and they feared him. So Paul knew his audience. His sermon was founded upon what his audience already knew from the scriptures. As we will see, Paul assumed the listeners knew many of the events of the Old Testament that he references. He used... His presuppositions or his pre understandings of the scripture to make a beeline to Christ, showing God's character and need for a savior. Folks, this is very, very important. He knew his audience. And you're going to see as we go along, I'm going to expound on some of the things that he said in the sermon, but he didn't expound as much on it because he knew he, they knew exactly what he was saying. He was talking to a very uh, biblically literate church. Not a church, but a synagogue. He knew they knew their Bibles, they knew their Old Testaments. And he gets up and he explains it, assuming truths. And that makes sense, right? By the way, this obviously doesn't fit with every evangelistic occurrence for us, does it? Some of the people we talk to don't know their Old Testament, they don't know the Bible. So you have to lay a lot more groundwork. But Paul went to a place that the, he knew his audience knew the Bible. And he assumed those pre-understandings. And notice Paul focused is on the God of Israel. In verse 17, notice he says, The God of this people Israel. Again, this set the framework for his sermon. He was clear. The good news is he had was consistent with the revelation of God in the Old Testament. The same God with the new blessings to be revealed. In other words, the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. You understand that. They're not two different gods. And some people say, well, I read the Old Testament, and I don't see the same God as the God of the New Testament. Well, if you say that, then you really haven't read your Old Testament. And you haven't read your New Testament either. They are the same. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the same God that sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world. We'll see it today as we go along. The sermon breaks down into three main sections. I want you to notice the faithfulness of God is verses 16 to 23. We'll talk about the faithfulness of God today. Then next week we'll develop and and see how it's developed, the promise of God, talking of Jesus specifically. And then third, we will see the exhortation of God. That is, that the apostle spoke with an exhortation to listen to the message and respond appropriately. So we're going to walk through these over the next couple weeks. Let's start though, today we are going to be encouraged by the faithfulness of God and ...confronted by the sinfulness of humanity. We will see it as he gives his exposition of the Old Testament. First, notice the faithfulness of God to Israel. The first half of Paul's sermon reveals nine displays of the faithfulness of the God of Israel. Let's start with the first one. God chose them. Speaking of Israel, God chose Israel. Notice it starts, Paul starts, Men of Israel... And you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. Folks, here we go. How many of you start your evangelistic sermons with election? Anybody start with election? There we go. We got one over there. It wants to go right to the heart of the matter, don't we? Now, this is very interesting because he's talking to a people that, as a whole, believed in election. What? They believed in election to a degree. You'll see as we go along. He says, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen, the God of this, Israel, uh, of this people chose our, our fathers. This chose to make a choice in accordance with this, with significant preference. Select one, someone for themselves. The Greek word for "chose" is the same word used in Ephesians chapter one, verse four, right here. That chose it's the same one as Ephesians chapter one, verse four. That the one that uh, many, many churches, unfortunately in America, avoid that passage. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, election. Right? It's that word that we talk about all little in the church in America. As we all know, the doctrine of election is obviously illustrated well by God's choice of the people of Israel, correct? That's what he does in Romans chapter 9. He talks about Israel is the illustration of election. And Paul starts with that. The people Paul was talking to considered God's election of Israel a truth. The problem was that they often associated God's choice of them with their own value, not on the basis of God's grace. Now, that is so important. That is crucial. I think all too often people that uh, hate the doctrine of election hate it because they think that it's based on something good in a person. God looked down and said, oh, I'll choose this little bit better person over here. That's why they dislike it so much. They think that, in a sense, that God's election is based on something that people do. In other words, he's like that old, uh, like a, I've said before, he's like the, the, the selecting of your, your, your football team when you were playing sandlot football. You're out there, and you're looking down at them, and you say, oh, I want that big guy over there. And I want that guy with a rocket arm. And yes, that's speedy wide receiver. And I always got picked last. (laughs) We think that election's based on value of people. And they thought that. They thought that. They thought, we're Israel. (laughs) We're obviously better than those Gentiles over those, those Goeens. The problem was they associated God's choice with human merit instead of God's grace alone. Paul is going to be clear through, though, to explain God's gracious choice of the people of Israel. And he's going to say that it was based on God's mercy, His grace, and His electing love, not based on their faithfulness. <laughs> In fact, he's going to say it's my faithfulness. I chose because of who God is, not because of who they are. You know, the doctrine of election often exposes our hearts, doesn't it? I know we all think way too high of ourselves, even as believers. We are born thinking we deserve, we are worthy of being chosen. When in fact, we all deserve to be passed over. In fact, we all deserve hell. Paul's sermon establishes the independent, gracious choice of God. And he starts right from the beginning. And how God ultimately chose to exalt his son, as we will see. Why did he choose Israel? Here you go. Here's a wild thought. Why did he choose Israel? He chose Israel so he could exalt his son. What? What? The point of his electing love is not to exalt, per se, us to the preeminent spot. Elections all based on the fact that God wants to exalt himself through Jesus Christ. We'll see it as we go along. Again, election often, when people think of predestination and election, we think, well, that means I'm special. Well, no, that means God is special. That means God is gracious. He chose Israel to exalt his son. And this is true of us today. If you're a believer in Christ, it's because God chose you not uh, primarily to exalt you, but to exalt Jesus Christ through us. All too often, people who come to the doctrines of grace begin to think way too high of themselves even inside of grace. We can fall into the temptation that God chose us, so we are something special again. But he primarily chose us for Christ's exaltation. How do I know this? Look at Romans 8, 29, our verses. We all know, we all go to this, right? For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. If we stop there, we say, oh, that's a great scripture, isn't it? Isn't that good? Man, God predestined me. He predetermined me to be conformed to the image of his son. But look at the purpose clause that's forgotten all too often. So that he, who? Christ, would be firstborn among many brethren. So that Christ would be preeminent among many. It's so that Christ would be exalted. Why did he choose us? What's the purpose of choosing us? Is it because we're worthy of being chosen? No. The purpose is to what? To exalt his son. It's all about that. And Paul starts in Acts 13, and it's almost like a bait and switch. Why is it a bait and switch? Because the Jew would be drawn into the message. They'd be thinking, oh, yeah. Yeah. He's talking about us, the chosen ones. Get with me, I'm here, I'm one of those chosen ones. And all those God-fearers that are sitting right beside him. (laughs) I'm one of them. I'm chosen. You're not, I am. You're not, I am. But he's going to turn it around. By the end, and we say, He chose you for a purpose, but the purpose was to bring about the promise of Christ. This is beautiful stuff. You're going to see it. It's a masterpiece of a sermon. He draws everybody in, and by the end, everybody is twitching in their seats. The Gentiles scream. Me too? And the Jews say, no way. Notice, Paul continues, God exalted them, Israel. I just said that it's not about exalting you, and then you say, well, why does he exalt them? It says here, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great. He exalted them during their stay in the land of Egypt, and with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it. God made the people great. God enhanced their honor, their fame, their position, their power, their success in Egypt. That's exactly what God did to Israel. God made Israel great while they were there. And as you read through Genesis, you see this in Exodus, you see this theme repeated. From Abraham to Isaac, from Jacob to Joseph, to the spread of the twelve brothers in their family. God exalting and growing the people and making them great. Again, this truth was both a means of great encouragement for the Jewish people, but it also became a means of arrogance for the people as time went along. Again, the fact is, God exalted the people. God made them a great nation. God made their crops grow. He made their animals flourish. He made the nation's growth and population explode. They profit. profit they profited because God was working on their behalf. God was exalting them. This is the kindness and faithfulness of God, isn't it? It's on display. What's amazing, though, is that as he prospered them and as he gave them all these blessings, how were they doing with it? Were they becoming more and more faithful to God? No. All the blessings actually became the condemnation on them. Why? Why? Oh, because of the depravity of their hearts and the depravity of our own hearts, fall into this too. Listen to me. Even after, as we see next, God delivered them from Egypt, it's always the same track record. Again, blessing should cause us to do what? It should cause us to respond in gratitude. We should all just walk around in awe of God. We should all just walk around thanking God always, shouldn't we? Every one of you that are in this room, you know that you are chosen by God most likely. You've repented and trusted in Christ, many of you. If you know these truths and you're forgiven, you should walk around with content hearts and grateful hearts, shouldn't we? Constantly, no matter what comes at us. But just like the people of Israel, they thought chosen, exalted, ungrateful, corrupt, grumbling. How about this? The doctrine of election turned up on its ear. Understanding these truths, yet thinking we deserve it. What in the world will we respond this way for? But This is us. We are an ungrateful people often, apart from God's grace. Please, beloved, check your hearts. Be sure that you're not ignoring the countless blessings that God has poured out on you. If you're not satisfied with what you have in Christ, there's a problem. Notice, so God chose them, and God exalted them, and God delivered them. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it. Talking about Egypt. Notice God led them out of Egypt. God led them out from an area which was causing them harm. We all know the story, right? He's assuming the stories, isn't he? He's assuming they know it. He did it with an uplifted arm. What's this mean? This is figurative language meant to emphasize God's great power on display in delivering them. And it would have brought to mind Exodus. I guarantee it. The power of God on display towards Israel in the Exodus is truly an awe-inspiring event, isn't it? Paul knew it. The people knew it. And so he referenced it. Just to think on this, what God did to deliver them. Think about this for a second with his uplifted arm. This brings to mind this passage. Look over at Exodus 7. Exodus 7, 4, and 5. When Pharaoh does not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my host, my people, the sons of Israel, from the land of Egypt by great judgments. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. Y'all know, you read this. You read Exodus, what do you see? Power on display in his deliverance, right? Great power. The The river turns to blood. There's frogs everywhere for a moment. There's gnats everywhere for a moment. For a time. There's flies everywhere for a moment. there's li- Their livestock dies. Painful boils arrive on everybody's body except Israel. Can you imagine? Walking around, you look. Oh, that's a Jew. They don't have boils. I have them all over my body. Hailstorms. A hailstorm that wiped out. A lot of their crops. Then there's locusts that come and take care of the rest. Darkness for three days where they could not see anything. For us, we would have just turned on the lights, but back then, that's a huge thing. And then, the firstborns all die. One night, goes through, and all the firstborn children die. Do you understand what, just, just for a second, just for a second, can you imagine what that would be like? How many of you in here are, are firstborns? Firstborn, raise your hand. Wow! Can you imagine? Wake up tomorrow, tomorrow and all firstborns are dead. Scary, isn't it? What did God do? What did God do? God showed his power and said, all of your gods, Egypt, let me show you, I'm more powerful than them all. You know all of those represented gods in Egypt? And God said, no, I'm over all of them. Then there was a pillar of fire and the parting of the Red Sea. Again, power displays like this towards their ancestors, should have produced humble dependence and obedience, right? I mean, you see all that, don't you think? You would think, right? I'm going to go out of this place serving that one that did that. I'm going to obey him to a T. Don't you think? Isn't that normal? Doesn't that make sense? You'd think. But instead, the opposite occurs. What does this show? What does this scream? What does this say to us? And what did it say to the audience then? It says this. You ready? No amount of miracles. No amount of miracles is going to convert a soul. None of those things does not convert the soul. We have wicked hearts. You can see the greatest display of God. You can feel the greatest emotions and have these great things but mean absolutely nothing because our hearts are so wicked and rebellious. And the goim in the room all went, Amen. That's what they did. They looked and said, you know, these Israelites, they were blessed. Wow, God's power was on display. But I fear God. And the Jews in the room said, yeah, God did t- treat us well. God did exalt us. He did deliver us. Notice God was patient with them. Verse 18. For a period of about 40 years, he put up with them. Boy, that, put that, underline that in the Bible. Put up with them. I love that translation of the NASB there. In the wilderness. God put up with them. He bore with them. God put up with their manner and their moods for 40 years in the wilderness. This was obvious history. Just a note, Paul spoke without any doubt of the biblical record. Do you see that? He's not putting into question, well, did they really have some miracles going on here? He was not a liberal. He believed in the inerrancy of scripture. He trusted in it, and he stood for it. He's speaking knowing and trusting in the authority and accuracy of Scripture. And he holds no punches. Just like Scripture holds no punches either, right? By the way, if you were to write a book about... Y'all know this. If we were to write a book about our church, we'd probably emphasize the good stuff. Fairly sure, right? But have you noticed the Bible doesn't emphasize the good stuff when it comes to the people of God? I mean, he exposes everything. He doesn't hold any punches. You know what that screams to me? The Bible is just what it says it is. True. Because if I was writing a book about myself, I'd write it, and I would leave out all the bad parts. Right? Read a bibliology uh, today. Most of the time, they don't talk about the bad stuff, especially autobiography, right? Bibliology. Biography. Not a bibliography. Don't you hate it when those words get mixed up in your mouth? An autobiography for sure would be self-exalting. But notice they are characterized by something here. God put up with these rebellious, ungrateful people in the wilderness for 40 years. This is a a picture of God's display of patience, correct? Remember how wicked they they had been. There was one... Main characteristic of the wilderness generation. You know what they were? They were complainers. Do you know how many times the word grumbling or complaining is used in the Pentateuch? Seventeen times. (laughs) Seventeen times they were characterized as grumblers or complainers. Ooh, listen closely, ladies and gentlemen, because I'm so afraid. We look at the Jews and we say... How could they complain? They were getting fed manna from heaven. How could they be that way? Listen to me close, folks. That is our culture. That is our community. That is our society. We walk around as those that think we are owed something and deserve something. We are the grumblers and complainers. We live amongst the people of grumbling and complaining, don't we? It must not be characteristic of us. We are chosen, they would say. We are lifted up. We are delivered by the powerful hand of God, and yet we still find ourselves grumbling when things don't go our way. We're never satisfied. Again, one thing is clear as Paul unfolds his exposition of the Old Testament. God is faithful when humans are sinful. There's the I mean you want to summarize the Old Testament? There it is. God is faithful when sin and when people are sinful. That's it. And that's exactly what he's showing. In his gospel presentation, he's saying, God is faithful, you are sinful. God is faithful, you are sinful. You know what? We could probably preach that message every week. It's almost that way every week, isn't it? From here, I'm sorry, it does sometimes sound like that, doesn't it? I don't know about you guys, but I know, I know. I need to hear it over and over again. Because I'm all too prone to think I deserve something better. Even this side of grace. What a shame, right? Notice, he put up with them and then he blessed them. When he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. Again, they grumbled, he put up with them, and then he blessed them. And he gave them the land. He gave them the land that somebody else was in. Somebody else was in, and why did he do that? Well, we know from reading our Bibles that he dispelled those people because of their Idolatry. He gave their land to Israel because of their idolatry. They had rejected God. By the way, they got what they deserved, but Israel didn't get what they deserved. (laughs) What? What did the people that he displayed got rid of there, destroyed, what did they get? Exactly what they deserved. What did Israel deserve? They did not deserve that land. <laughs> they did not deserve those promises. And none of us do either. But God. Bless them. Again, are you seeing the, the common theme? It's what? God's grace. Despite man's sinfulness. It's the message. Boy, this is about as... Uh, I don't like to use these words. I'll use this one instead. Or these, this phrase instead. This is about as strongly doctrines of grace as any other sermon. And it's an evangelistic sermon. Going into a new place. He blessed them. Again, the kindness of God here is on display, right? God should have let, should have destroyed them all. But instead, he gave them the land. And as we see in the book of Judges, everyone. Didn't get it. (laughs) Most people didn't get it. Matter of fact, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. God gives them the land and they go in and they do what? They sin. And they're rebellious. Paul is saying, God has blessed us Jews. God has been patient with us. God has delivered us. God has exalted us. God has chosen us. I find it so interesting. The Gentiles in the crowd... Could have been very jealous at this point. As Paul began to unfold this message. And the Jews in the crowd should have been humbled. Correct? Those in the crowd. They should have been going. Those Jews in the crowd. The Israelites should have in that spot been going. man. Why? Why do you love me? Why God have you treated me so kindly? And the Gentiles in the room. Why not us? Why not us? Please me. Instead, at the end, the Gentiles cry out, Me too? Wow! Thank you! I want to hear more! Give me more! I want to hear more! Give me some more of Christ! And the Jews say, when they look at them, they say, no way to them too. oh this is so much this is so important I hope you get this concept here Hmm. this is what Paul's talking about in Romans 11 so true when we understand God's election it should drive us to our knees when we understand God's grace and favor short towards us, it should drive us to our knees. But all too often, that re- abiding sin that still fights within our soul stands up and says, It's about me. Why? This is what happens. Look, Acts 13:45, at the end of the sermon. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. This sermon is like one big giant. Look at how God has been faithful to you. And what do they do? They become jealous because the Gentiles embrace the message. It is our pride and it is our self-interest that keeps us from seeing the glory of the cross. Oh, friends. The grace of being provided, to, being provided to others should have been the reason for worship. Instead, it became a point of jealousy. Oh, this is so like the depraved human heart, isn't it? We are fine as long as we are being told we are favored by God. But when we learn that we must share the favor with others, we become jealous. Oh, this should be painful. Oh, how wicked we are. The sermon exposed the wickedness of humanity and the glory of the grace of God. Again, after being allotted the land, the people should have been overwhelmingly grateful, right? But instead, notice, God had to provide Deliverers. Judges. In verse 1320 it says, After these things he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Again, that might sound like just a side note, but it ain't. (laughs) It's very important. Because the judges were given to Israel because of their rebellion and because of their circumstances. Because what God would do is he would discipline them. He would discipline them for their pride and their arrogance and their idolatry he would discipline them and then he would raise up a judge to help them get out of the circumstance again grace upon grace upon grace read the Old Testament what do you see grace everybody says read the Old Testament and what do you see wrath no I see grace yes there's wrath but there's grace too He appointed judges for a special responsibility. I've had this discussion a couple of times with some people about some of the wickedness that went on with some of the people in the Old Testament. And they're like, so why didn't God say anything? I mean, why didn't he whack them? I mean, David had how many wives? Ultimately, I think he was just being gracious with an eye to his son. He saw Jesus. He knew Jesus. He understood the plan. It was about the exaltation of Jesus, not the exaltation of David, as we'll see, or the judges. Look over at Judges. Did you see this? Oh, man, we're running out of time. Was that not the quickest? 45 minutes of your life? That was fast. Darn. Oh well. We'll pick it back up next week. Y'all don't mind, do you? Let's read this though. Let's read Judges two eleven. You see God's faithfulness. We'll close with this. A great illustration of God's faithfulness. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord and the God of their father who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them, and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. So they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Asherah. And the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And he gave them into the hands of plunderers and plundered them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies around them. ...so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil... ...as the Lord had spoken and as the Lord had sworn to them... ...so that they would be severely distressed. Then the Lord raised up judges... ...who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges... ...for they played the harlot after other gods... And bowed themselves down to them. They turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do as their fathers. When the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity, compassion, by by their groaning because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. But it came about when the judge died that they would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers and following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. they did not abandon their practices or their stubborn ways. Oh man, when I read this it's just a picture of the humanities of humanity's depravity. God's raising up these deliverers, and what do they do? They turn around and they Fall right back into sin. Beloved, I want you to listen to me closely. Here's your application for today. Listen close. If you know Christ, there is no room for going back to the world. If you know the glory of the grace of God, there is no room for returning to the vileness of this world. Grace should motivate obedience and humility and love for God. All too often, I think we find ourselves falling into the trap of the Israelites. We need God to give us a fresh glimpse of his faithfulness, don't we? God, change our hearts. Help us to obey him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness towards us in Christ. We thank you for this sermon and your word that gives us an overview of who you are and who we are. And what we need, which is you. We need Christ. Lord, I know that there's some probably in this room that have not bowed the knee to your son yet. They may have bowed the knee to the world and to money and to the idols of this world maybe. But Father, we pray that you will help them to see their sin and turn to you. For our hope is in Christ and Christ alone. And for all of us that name the name of Christ, we wear the name of Christ. Oh God, may we look like your children. Give us grace, God. Help us to live for your glory and your honor. For we know that we were chosen not by our good. But by your grace, we know that you have seated us with Christ in heavenly places. By your grace, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. Oh, what blessings you've poured out on us. You've deposited your spirit in us. And we know you and we can abide with you and we can enjoy you. God, please have mercy on our souls. Please cause us to understand the depth and breadth and width of your love that is found in Christ. God, please change us and make us people that look like those who are called by you. We need you, God. We thank you for Christ. We thank you that you have chosen us, not for us, but for his glory. May he be preeminent in all of our hearts. We pray this in his name. Amen. Please stand.